From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. On Monday, the Vatican made a surprising announcement. Pope Francis is planning to visit Iraq next March, his first international trip since the start of the coronavirus pandemic. Francis will be the first pope to visit this majority Muslim country and wants to make the visit what the Vatican called a concrete gesture of closeness to the people of Iraq, who have suffered through years of war and instability. As we look forward to Pope Francis's visit and pray it will be an occasion of bridge building between Christians and Muslims, I'm especially happy to welcome Jordan Denary Duffner to the show today. Jordan is an acclaimed author and scholar of Muslim-Christian relations, interreligious dialogue, and Islamophobia. Her books are Finding Jesus Among Muslims, How Loving Islam Makes Me a Better Catholic, from 2017, and Islamophobia, What Christians Should Know and Do About Anti-Muslim Discrimination, which will be published in the spring of 2021. She is also a PhD student in theological and religious studies at Georgetown University. We talked about Muslim-Christian dialogue and what we can all do to take a stand against Islamophobia and work toward understanding and peace. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you listen to podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Jordan Denary Duffner, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. How have you been uh, holding up in kind of all this this craziness? It's I've been doing well. You know, we um, have a little outdoor space here at our house in Maryland outside of Washington, D.C. And so I just spend a lot of time outside and try to soak in the last of the fall weather before it gets dark and cold. <laughs> I know. It's like every day that's nice. And like this is maybe I don't know if it's like kind of Catholic guilt or pessimism or I don't know what it is built into me. Uh, but every time it's like nice outside, I'm like, eh, it's going to be not nice soon. Uh, yeah. and I, so I cannot enjoy it fully because I'm just thinking about how it's going to be not nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, but for now we're neighbors. We were just saying before we came on, we're generally neighbors, general neighbors yeah. in Maryland. And it's been, yeah, it's pretty nice. That's a nice thing about this part of, uh, you know, the country, not too terrible. Well, yeah. I just, um, really excited to to have you on. I feel like you're, you're doing really important, great work kind of at the intersection and of, uh, dialogue between uh, Christians and Muslims and really just kind of leading the way for uh, in this field. And I feel like for for quite a while you've been doing this, writing books and, and other things. And uh, we'll be sure to link to some of that stuff people can, can find in our show notes. But I, I yeah, I'm just happy to, to talk a little bit kind of about what, what you're doing um, and what you've learned to kind of in this work and, and as you continue to, to study and work. But maybe we could just start by uh, you're telling us a little bit about your background and how you got into uh, this particular field. Sure. Uh, so I'm a Midwesterner at heart. I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana, going to Catholic grade school and uh, Jesuit high school. I went to to Burbuff Jesuit um, in Indianapolis and um, was very much in kind of an insular Catholic Christian community growing up, um, but always had interest in other religions and a curiosity about other religions and particularly about Islam. Um, I was in fifth grade when 9-11 happened. And so Islam was um, very much on my radar um, during my upbringing. Um, and I was very interested in it as a religious tradition and then also kind of concerned about the rise in prejudice that um, that we were seeing during that during that period. Um, 
I went to Georgetown for my undergrad here in, in DC and focused on Muslim Christian relations. And I studied Arabic. Um, I studied abroad in the Middle East and lived for a time in the country of Jordan, uh, doing Fulbright research there on um, the, the impact of Christian television media on uh, Christian Muslim relations and um, the way that Christian television channels would talk about Islam and, and the ways that that shaped Christians views there. Um, and then I came back to the States and I started working at the Bridge Initiative, which um, focuses on Islamophobia and tries to help the public better understand this phenomenon and connect some of the good work that's going on in academia to the, the public sphere. And um, and now I'm doing uh, graduate work in, in the field. Uh, I'm in a theology and religious studies program at Georgetown. And uh, I'm really interested in Catholic approaches to religious pluralism, the ways that Catholic theologians think about religious diversity. Um, and, you know, as I said, I grew up in this sort of post 9-11 period where Islam was um, on the radar for better or for worse. And for me, that had a positive impact in that um, it shaped my own spiritual journey. You know, as someone who grew up Catholic um, in this very insular space, um, I, I had a period where I uh, kind of became disillusioned with the faith of my upbringing and the experience of dialogue and learning about Islam and dialoguing with Muslim friends in college and in the Middle East helped me to actually re-embrace my Catholicism in, in a new way and recommit myself and to appreciate what, um, what I might not have appreciated in my Catholicism before. Um, and then what, what's also motivated this trajectory as well is just this issue of Islamophobia and the fact that um, oftentimes in our Catholic faith community, there's this disconnect where, you know, we espouse certain ideals and values about how we should treat other people and yet still hold on to some of these biases and prejudices. Yeah. So as you mentioned, the relationship between Christianity and Islam, like kind of those big, big communities, and then more specifically between Christians and Muslims, there's a lot going on there, right? There's just maybe a lack of understanding of the prejudice that has you know, kind of seeped in a lot of places. There's some there's some tension there, especially like here in, in the West. So could, I'm just wondering if you could talk about some of those experiences you had as some as you were growing in interest and in trying to kind of build some of these bridges. Mm -hmm. What have reactions been like? What has your experience been like personally? So I think the at least right now, I see this simultaneous improvement in Muslim-Christian relations, but also um, uh, a worsening in a sense. Um, I, I think as uh, Islamophobia became more and more blatant in our political sphere in the U.S., particularly over the last decade, but especially over the last like five or six years, um, things have gotten worse in a sense. Um, at the same time, uh, more than ever, I see Christians of all denominations, um, maybe for the first time, uh, forging new bonds with Muslims and standing up for Muslims and saying, hey, we don't, um, we want to resist these, the stereotyping of Muslims, the scapegoating of Muslims that's going on in the public sphere. Um, and so I, I think both of those things are going on at the same time. And, and part of that has to do with at least in the United States, this political polarization that we have where um, it's sort of in vogue on in, in some political spheres to scapegoat Muslims and then it's in vogue to stand in solidarity with Muslims um, in other spaces. And so, um, you know, you have these simultaneous forces going on. Um, 
what I found really interesting at, in my time in the Middle East is that, um, you know, there's there's sort of this stereotype about the Middle East as this place of perpetual religious conflict, which is just, you know, we see examples of that today, but it's it's not universally true of history. And what I found really interesting, but also troubling when I was in Jordan is that, um, you know, for a long time, Christians and Muslims have had these uh, really positive relationships um, as neighbors, as friends, as just fellow travelers on the journey. Um, and in part, the influence of outside media um, is <clears throat> serving to upset that um, those positive relationships and to call into question the trust that these communities have built over time. Uh, so those are just two sort of examples um, that I that I've looked at in my work. You mentioned that uh, doing some of this work, kind of feeling kind of disconnected from your own faith, kind of having those dialogues, just learning more about the relationships between Christians and Muslims helped you in your own faith. Could you tell us a little mm -hmm. bit more about uh, that part of your your own journey? Yeah. So um, when I was in high school, but particularly in college, I spent a lot of time um, with Muslim friends that I made. Uh, in you know informal dialogue settings, but also more organized um, settings of interreligious dialogue, and you know I was coming into those conversations with my Catholic identity, but kind of unsure about where I stood with it. Um, not sure if I believed the doctrines that we profess. Um, not feeling super emotionally connected to this tradition that I'd grown up with, and seeing the commitment that my Muslim friends had to their faith, seeing the the way that they prioritized prayer, seeing the community life they had, um, and, and seeing the way that they were able to remain uh, Muslim and to remain a, a committed uh, individual in a tradition that, um, you know, is so diverse and, you know, there's internal debates going on and, and you know, it, it's hard to be a part of such a diverse, large community, whether we're Muslims or Christians or Catholics or whomever, um, and to, to see how they lived out their faith and to see the beauty in this other religion actually made me say to myself, okay, I want to find what's beautiful on my own. I, or, or I, I now recognize certain things um, as beautiful, as life-giving, as important in ways that I didn't before. Um, and so you know, I came into college um, not not sure I wanted to be Catholic anymore and left college going to mass almost every day during our, like we had nightly masses on campus. And I really credit my Muslim friends for um, engendering that shift in me and helping me to realize that, you know, you can, even with your questions and your doubts and your um, joys and your sorrows, you can still find a home in um, in this tradition. And it doesn't mean that you don't like other religions necessarily. You can find beauty in others and still find a home um, in Catholicism. I reached out to you recently because you've written just a, a great piece for the National Catholic Reporter, kind of responding to Pope Francis's newest document, Fratelli Tutti, which kind of about the universal connectedness between uh, all peoples across religious lines uh, included. Uh, so in some ways, think of, of him uh, with this document as someone after your own heart, someone who <laughs> wants to be building those those bridges. Um, I always find him when he kind of shares Catholicism to do it in that in that way that is very inviting and not imposing and just kind of rooted in his own love of the tradition, but 
makes him very able to kind of speak with people from all kinds of backgrounds because he's not defensive at all, right? He just is able mm-hmm. to to kind of share this in a really welcoming way. So I'm just curious about uh, some of your feedback or on that document, kind of reading it, what was going through your your mind and heart as you read it, and then for you, how it reflects or expands on maybe Pope Francis's uh, priorities in interfaith dialogue. Sure. So I was really excited when I heard that Fratelli Tutu was going to be coming out on the anniversary or on the feast day of St. Francis and with the theme of human fraternity, because um, I knew that he had written on that topic with the grand imam of Al-Azhar, Ahmed Al-Tayyib, who was a, a major Muslim leader. Um, back in 2019, they, they signed that joint document um, talking about the ways that their faith, their respective faiths inform their stances on a number of social issues and the need for human fraternity. And so I was really excited and wondering, okay, is, there's, is there going to be a, a lot on Islam in this new encyclical? And I was really excited. And um, when I read it, I did a quick um, like control F like search of the document to look for Islam and Muslims to see what he had said. And there was nothing like he, he didn't actually use the words Islam or Muslims at all in the document. And so I thought, oh, this is strange. Um, you know, he's uh, because with the connection to St. Francis and St. Francis's meeting with the Sultan and then his own meeting with the Imam, I thought, OK, this is going to be a, a at least a passing reference in the document. And so when I didn't see these words there, I was a little bit concerned at first. Um, but in, I think, <clears throat> classic Pope Francis style, um, he doesn't he's able to get his message across sort of in gestures and the way things are framed rather than in the exact words that, that he uses. And so as I wrote in the, the National Catholic Reporter piece, you know, Catholic Muslim dialogue very much frames Fratelli Tutti, even if that specific relationship isn't spoken of um, as explicitly as I maybe would have thought it would be. So Pope Francis opens the document um, talking about his own relationship with Imam Ahmed al-Tayyib and their work on this joint document. And he also talks about uh, St. Francis, his namesake, and the encounter that the saint had with a sultan, uh, a Muslim ruler in Egypt named um, al-Malik al-Kamil in 1219, um, in the middle of the Crusades. And he talks about the personal encounter that the two of them had, their efforts to achieve peace between their two warring communities at the time. Um, and he makes this really important point, I think, that that should guide our interreligious um, relationships, which is that um, St. Francis didn't, didn't go to the Sultan to, quote unquote, impose doctrines or to try to um, convince him to, to necessarily um, adopt his own perspective on everything, uh, but rather to, to spread love. You know, and that can sound kind of like, you know, kumbaya and, um, you know, vague and, and fluffy um, and saccharine. But I think it's it actually is really profound. And, and the point that I would also make is that, you know, for Francis, both I think the saint and the pope, um, when we talk about love and we talk about the gospel, it's not just about spreading something that's not already in places, but also shining a light and recognizing when that love and that gospel message is already present. And and being lived by people, even if they don't profess Christianity. Um, and so I very much see um, Pope Francis trying to point that out in the encyclical and um, to help 
reorient our way of viewing the other. Um, and uh, he closes the document with a reference to a, another Catholic who had um, encounters with Muslims, Charles de Foucault, who lived in North Africa. So, um, you know, he, these, these personal relationships are at the forefront for Francis and shape all of this. And, um, you know, for him, the, the personal relationships are at the core and then any sort of big conclusions that we may come to, like they need to be based on those immediate relationships and friendships we have with Muslims or whoever the person is. Yeah, I think that reflects a big theme from his pontificate when he talks about the culture of encounter, right? So like mm -hmm. you have a world and, you know, he and I think it's a big theme in Fratelli Tutti, but you have this throwaway culture in which people are kind of gotten rid of who are not seen as, as helpful or people demonized. Again, you have these these different camps that split out and to, to say like, no, well, if you believe that we're all kind of part of this one family with God as the father of all, then like we have to, you know, do better at getting to know mm -hmm. people across some of those boundaries that we have put up. Uh, between human communities to, to overcome that and that you don't really like throw away someone or you know you don't demonize someone who you're friends with and so kind of building the, those friendships is it does seem to be really at the heart of like pope francis's project in this way and i'm wondering like how that for you like resonated with your own experiences you had talked some about about this like having friends and having help you know learn more about your own faith even from yeah. conversations with with different muslims and i i wonder like part of interreligious dialogue there's a tension there right there can be because there's different truth claims right that are in some ways not compatible there are ways that seem like we've maybe viewed the world differently that like you can only get so far in in dialogue because then it, it stops and then what do you even talk about what do you do so i'm just wondering if you could share any kind of reflections about why you see the value in interfaith dialogue, what you see as kind of big goals yeah, in those things. And yeah, just like any kind of tips for us and why we might want sure. to, in our own lives, like think about how can we kind of build some of those relationships if we are in our own kind of uh, bubble a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and I think the question of what is interreligious dialogue for, what's its purpose, that's a really important question because I think different people have different ideas about what dialogue is for. And um, even among Catholics, you know, um, even within the hierarchy, I think there's different ideas about what dialogue is for. Um, for me, and I, I suspect for Francis, um, you know, at, at its core, and, and I think the same is true for John Paul II as well. The, the purpose of dialogue is, um, you know, a relationship with other human beings that has God at the center. And that is um, recognizing that we can draw closer to God through this encounter with other people. Um, and that means that, you know, doctrinal claims or truth claims might come up and, and should be discussed and um, are important, but it doesn't, I don't think it means that that's the only thing that dialogue has to be about. Um, the church talks about these different forms of dialogue where, um, you know, sometimes dialogue is uh, oriented around uh, social service or social action, where we are coming together with people of different faiths to um, to help other people. Or um, one of my favorites is is, and I think Pope Francis is a master of this: um, the dialogue of spiritual experience, where you either participate in or observe um, rituals or aspects of the spiritual life of of people of other traditions. Um, and so, you know, I. I don't think dialogue is only about talking. I think it's also about having these kind of immersive experiences, these friendships. Um, Pope Francis talks a lot about dialogue as encounter for sure. Um, and in that encounter, sharing our joys and sorrows, um, living alongside people, 
um, this is what the church calls the dialogue of life. Um, and it's not even something that we do um, as like a separate activity that we schedule on the calendar. You know, the thing I say to Catholics a lot when I give talks is um, you're probably already doing interfaith dialogue without even realizing it. Because if you, when you meet someone of a different faith tradition and you're approaching them with openness and hospitality and a willingness to to learn from them um, that, you know, and, and, and to just have a human relationship, that to me is interfaith dialogue. And um, I think that's what Francis is demonstrating for us so often. I mean, from the earliest days of his pontificate, he, um, in more than in words and his gestures and the way that he relates to people, I think demonstrates what dialogue is supposed to be about. Um, and, 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 you know, to, to go back to the earlier point that you made about truth claims, I think it is important to talk about those. And it's, it's fine if we ultimately um, say that we have different hold different views on on these doctrinal matters. I've been really fortunate in my graduate studies to take a number of courses with two Muslim students, um, one who is Sunni Muslim from North Africa and one who is Iranian American and is a Shia Muslim. And um, we, we all, the three of us took a course on um, the Reformation together. And so it was like the beginning of a bad joke, like a Catholic, a Sunni and a Shia walk into a class on Martin Luther. <laughs> um, and it was, such an amazing experience to um, to hear their perspectives on Christian theology, both Protestant and Catholic. Um, and, you know, to realize that, yeah, we, we may want to talk about God in different ways. Um, but I think, you know, good theology also recognizes its limits um, and the limits of language. And to say, you know, we are doing the best we can with the resources that we have, with the traditions that we have to talk about God, but ultimately realizing that God, you know, pale, I mean, God is far beyond anything that we can say or conceptualize about God. And, and for me, that kind of theological um, humility is really important and, you know, is something that I think everyone who's doing theological dialogue needs to be cognizant of. You mentioned at the beginning that one way of doing dialogue is kind of working together on whether it's humanitarian, social service, social justice work, and that kind of a lot of, you know, most of these big world religious traditions that kind of have that as a, a key element. I think of my mm -hmm. own, my own background, it reminded me of my, my own background coming from a, a family with a Catholic mom and a Jewish dad. And you know, I, seeing some of the similarities in the shared traditions, including, you know, something like uh, Holy Week, often having the Passover Seder with matzah and wine and then going into Holy Thursday with the, mm -hmm. the institution of the Eucharist and like seeing those connections very clearly. Mm -hmm. And then also for, for both traditions too, the, the kind of emphasis on, on social justice, a, a phrase I, I learned in Hebrew uh, not too long ago, tikkun olam, like the idea of repairing the world. And obviously yeah. like social justice is a, a key element of this, you know, the Jewish faith tradition, people, again, who had been oppressed, uh, going back to, mm -hmm. you know, the book of Exodus, and and then uh, God hearing them and freeing those who were oppressed, and then how kind of Catholic social teaching picks up on a lot of those themes. And so my own career for a long time was in Catholic social justice ministries, I saw it as a way of bringing these traditions together. I'm wondering for you, not necessarily in that sphere, but what, as you've grown and learned more about um, 
Islam, what are things maybe that surprised you that you saw were that were commonalities, points where people could come yeah. together and and see some echoes of each other's traditions. I know, for mm-hmm. instance, that that Mary makes an appearance in the Quran, right? I, I again don't yeah. know much, but uh, just any of any of those ways that you saw kind of some some neat synergies uh, in your in your dialogues. Yeah. Um, oh, there's so many things. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'll start with with Mary, sure, um, because she's such an imp- important figure for Catholics um, and is an important figure for Muslims too. Um, you know, and she's one of numerous figures from the Bible that appear in the Quran. I mean, the Quran is, you know, as so as as Muslims, holy scripture is um, uh, believed to be God's speech to Muhammad's community and the community of Muslims and to the world, really. Um, and so, when the Quran is speaking uh, to mm. its audience. Um, it is in seventh century Arabia, it is assuming that this population knows a lot of the stories from the biblical tradition. Um, and so it, it uh, you know, God in, in the Quran is referencing, oh, remember Mary when X, Y, Z happened to her, when the angel came and announced that she was going to be the mother, despite the fact that she was not, of Jesus, despite the fact that she was not married. Or um, remember uh, this story about Joseph from, you know, the Old Testament Joseph, when his brothers threw him down the well and these sorts of things. Um, and so there's all of these different references to biblical stories in, in the Quran. And sometimes the, the Quran will do new things with them and to spin them in different ways. Um, for example, the Islamic tradition um, does not see Jesus as the divine son of God, not as God incarnate. And so Jesus um, appears in the Quran and, and you know, makes some, some claims about himself that that are, you know, in tension or in conflict with a Christian um, Christology, for example. Um, so it, it's really interesting to see the ways that um, that there are similarities, but also differences within the similarities, how characters are, are invoked in different ways um, and uh, the sorts of things that, that they represent. Um, but yeah, for me, the, the focus on Mary has been um, a, a great, uh, focal point for dialogue because in the Islamic tradition, she's not just seen as this, you know, mother figure. Like it's not just her maternity that is the 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 main focus. Which sometimes, unfortunately, I think that's the only thing people talk about in um, the Catholic tradition. But Mary in in Islam is also seen as 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 a, a scholar in a sense, or as this learned uh, woman who was very devoted to God. Um, she and I think this also exists in the Christian tradition, even though it's not in the Bible, where um, Mary kind of lives in or adjacent to the temple and is under the care of um, Zachariah or the the leadership of, of the Jewish temple, and and thus is very educated in um, in the Jewish faith, and um, you know is is a, a role model. Uh, in her own right, not not only because she's the mother of this important figure um, that comes, you know, from her. Um, I, I could mention so many other things. You know, this this isn't um, maybe a similarity so much as something that's unique. But I am a hu- I'm hugely appreciative of Islamic art um, and the ways that is similar and different from Christian art. Um, there's a real focus on geometric patterns and. Um, the written word and calligraphy in Islamic art um, that I just find really, I'm really enamored with. And, you know, I think 
many Catholics are, are big art people, you know, we like, um, you know, Catholic churches are usually adorned with a lot of, of, of art. And, um, so that for me has been a, a real point of entry, um, to, to look at similarities and differences and how we represent the divine in, in that way. No, that's, yeah, that, that's great. And I, I think we can maybe kind of continue on this path a little bit by talking about your upcoming book, which I think will mm-hmm. definitely kind of hit on some of these uh, ways that we can build unity with, uh, within our diversity. Uh, the book is titled uh, Islamophobia, What Christians Should Know and Do About Anti-Muslim Discrimination. So I just want to ask, where did that book come from? Like, what's the, what's the background story? And then we can kind of dig into some of the things in it. Yeah. So, um, first of all, my, my publisher Orbis, uh, reached out and suggested the idea to me, which was, I was so grateful for because, um, it was a book that I think had been, uh, uh, like it it was there in me. Um, but I, I didn't, I I think I needed someone external to, to let me know that and to, to kind of draw it out from me. Um, and so, yeah, Orbis reached out and, uh, a number of, a few years ago now and said, hey, would you be interested in writing a book about Islamophobia for us from a Christian perspective and for a Christian audience? And, uh, and I said, yes, I don't know why I didn't think of this sooner. <laughs> this is really important. And because I think there's a, a dire need for um, work that is written for Christians about this issue, because there's a lot of great academic work um, and, and a lot of work that um, treats the issue kind of as a, um, a political issue or an academic issue, but that doesn't look at it through the eyes of faith. And I think um, it's really important that we do that. I mean, we do this with so many other issues, whether it's climate change or racial justice or immigration, you know, we, it's not uncommon now for us to, um, to hear Catholics giving takes from the perspective of Catholic social teaching or other lenses to these social issues that we see, um, even if they don't impact us directly. Um, and so I'm sort of making the case in this book that even though Islamophobia is not something that targets Christians or Catholics, that we have a responsibility to push back against religious discrimination, um, no matter whom it targets. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's a little bit about the the background of the book. So again, part of that subtitle, what kind of Christians should know and do. So I, I don't mm-hmm. want you to give away everything, right? <laughs> but I I am curious about like what what are some of those kind of bullet points you might lead with? If uh, what should Christians know, and then what should Christians do? Sure. Um, so I think I'll, I'll run through some of them. Um, first, I think we need to recognize that Islamophobia is not something brand new. I think a lot of the people that I'm writing for um, will have only become aware of this issue of Islamophobia uh, within the last few years, particularly during the last election cycle, when there was a lot of anti-Muslim political rhetoric. Um, For me personally, that's when um, like other, like people I would meet would, um, well, when I would tell them what I did for a living, when I, I was researching Islamophobia, that was the first time that they wouldn't look at me kind of dumbfounded and be like, what is that? You know, what <laughs> they like actually under, they, they had heard about this, this problem of, of Muslims being, um, facing discrimination and prejudice, um, and now kind of realized that it was, was a problem. But the point that I want to make is that Islamophobia has really deep roots, um, going all the way back to nine 11, but even before that. Um, a lot of the stereotypes that we have about Muslims um, are centuries old and and have been deployed 
um, you know, with the purpose of marginalizing certain communities, whether it's here in the United States or in earlier centuries when the West was colonizing parts of uh, the Muslim world. Um, another point that I make in the book um, is that Islamophobia is not, um, it, it's, it's, a bipar it's a bipartisan issue in a sense in that it exists on both sides of the political spectrum. Again, uh, many people only started noticing it when Donald Trump and, and others running with him on the Republican side started making anti-Muslim comments. But um, Islamophobia exists, I think, in more subtle but equally harmful forms on the political left at times, um, even as, you know, um, Democrats as a bloc uh, tend to be more uh, vocal in opposing Islamophobia in an overt way nowadays. Um, Islamophobia is also uh, very intertwined with other forms of bigotry, um, whether it's anti-Semitism or anti-Black racism. And um, it also impacts people who aren't Muslim. So uh, we can think of um, people of the Sikh faith who wear turbans and who are from South Asia. They are not Muslim, but they are often faced with anti-Muslim bigotry. Um, and there have been Christians that have been on the receiving end of hate crimes that were intended for Muslims because they um, are from the Middle East and are Arab, and those are seen as synonymous with being Muslim. Um, and I guess, you know, one of the things that we should do is harness our Christian and Catholic faith tradition um, and draw on the insights from Catholic social teaching and other um, theological and practical resources that we have to, to respond. Um, I was recently on a call, another, uh, like a Zoom call for the Ignatian Family Teaching for Justice uh, last weekend. Um, and I was doing a session on Islamophobia and I had a lot of Muslim students come on the call. The, the point of the call was to talk about what we Christians can do about this issue, but a lot of Muslim students came on the call, which was fantastic. And um, one of the Muslim students said to, to, to the rest of us on the call, he said, you know, what you should do to combat Islamophobia is to, to teach Catholicism and as it's meant to be taught. And, and those values that I know that you have, um, they, they don't, they don't stand for, for what we often see in terms of how oh, Muslims are treated uh, and mistreated today. Um, I, I can mention some other things, but uh, uh, those, that's just a, a taste, I guess. Sure. I, I didn't want to like go through all the misconception, right. And give voice to them and then like ask you to like dispel all of them. But at <laughs> least maybe one area that we, we could talk about is one that sure. as like a non-expert myself, when I hear like, I don't know what to say about is like, people would point to like what they would call radical Islamism or radical Islam and Islamic terrorism or violent, or is it even, you know, as opposed to sometimes even saying like, oh, it's just kind of a few people who like are misinterpreting the faith who are using it violently. Some might say like, oh, no, no, no. But like, really, it's not a peace, a peaceful faith. It's not a peaceful community. It's not a value for them mm -hmm. that way. And that to me, like doesn't seem right. And I've heard some like kind of you know, some correcting of that narrative. But yeah. like when you get asked that question, which I'm sure you do, um, what are even whether in the book or, or other spaces, like how yeah. do you how do you respond to that? Well, I, I think, you know, it's important that we debunk these stereotypes head on and talk about like why they're factually wrong, but then also to point out the the function that these sorts of claims serve. And I mean recognizing that ultimately it's um 
you know, it's scapegoating and it's stereotyping a community that is, um, you know, that is that is new to this country or that is marginalized. Um, you know, and that's not to, you know, that's not to ignore that, you know, Muslims, uh, you know, a, a very small, small, small minority have committed acts of violence. Like we, we know that um, just as people from every community do things that are completely antithetical to the mainstream teachings of um of these uh, of these different religions. So, I mean, first of all, I point out that you know this uh, these episodes of violence or terrorism that we see are infinitesimally small, um, and, and the reason why they seem overrepresented is because many people don't know Muslims personally, and oftentimes this is the only time that Islam is ever in the news is when something bad happens, um, and that's partially because. Um, what bleeds sells, um, you know, or gets eyeballs um, when it comes to, to news media. Um, but also because this is sort of an entrenched stereotype that has existed for a long time. And one of the things I talk about in the book is that, you know, when Western powers were, um, you know, trying to make the case for either their colonization of other Muslim um, contexts or when we're trying to make the case for going to war in the Middle East, it's a lot easier to do that when the pop that group is cast as, oh no, they're the violent ones. They're the ones who, um, you know, who can't help but be like this. And um, I think it's important that we understand some of the genesis of that and and the function that serves. You know, I um, I talk in the book about how um, in the run up to uh, in the run up to American incursions into the Middle East, we see this rise in American public opinion of people agreeing that Islam is inherently more violent than other religions. And I don't think that's an accident. I think it's, you know, when when it's convenient for us to have an enemy, you know, we, um, that, that narrative becomes more common. Um, you know, and, and again, I, I want to go back to the way that Muslims, by and large, interpret their faith, and it's not leading to you know, mass violence and, and casualties. If if it were the case that this is what true Islam, quote unquote, was, we would see a lot more <laughs> violence um, than we do. And, um, you know, my Muslim friends are really, get really sad when, um, when they feel like they constantly have to prove that no, our religion is not violent because they're like, look at how we're, look, you know, look at how I'm living. Look at, I, I'm a normal um I'm trying to live a, a normal, a good life. And, um, for people to assume that that's not, um, that that's not the default, that something more sinister is our default. Um, it's, you know, it, it, it hurts, it, it hurts them and it's difficult. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they ultimately see, um, you know, by and large Muslims see their tradition as inspiring goodness and, and justice in the way that Catholics do. Um, and, and we all have our, um, are co-religionists who sometimes abuse that and um, want to interpret the tradition in harmful ways. So you, you, again, you had mentioned that in some ways in recent years, some of the, these tensions that we've seen or like some of the demonizing that happens within Christian communities ha has gotten worse. I, I do feel like in some ways you have like carved out this, this space and there are not too many people like lining up to do what you're doing. Um, if within the Christian context, like you're kind of leading the way in some ways. Uh, and I imagine that can be 
oh, I don't know. Is that like ever a, a lonely place or challenging? And then just kind of on the flip side of that, like kind of sitting in a place in which there is undeniable tension, like what kind of yeah. what, what keeps you going? What keeps you grounded? What, why? Why, uh, why do you keep uh, going uh, this way? Like, why do you think that's an, an important thing to do? Yeah, so um, it can be lonely at times, but I will say, um, fortunately, I am, I'm not alone. And there are more and more um, people doing this. And there have been people doing this long before, <laughs> long before me. Um, and uh, what's been really great about writing these books is that I hear from other people more, um, well, not just scholars and experts, but um, ordinary Catholics who say, what you've written is reflective of my experience. And thank you for giving voice to that. And I, you know, I, I you know, they, they understand where I'm coming from, and have had a similar experience and are trying to do similar work. And um, just last night, I was on a call with um, a group in Spokane, Washington called Bridges Not Walls, which is a group of Catholics that came together. Um, they formed a couple of years ago, specifically with the purpose of combating Islamophobia and improving Muslim Christian relations in Spokane, Washington. And talking to them gave me so much hope and hearing all the things they've done and the the progress they've made and, and the relationships they formed. I mean, it was just so encouraging and moving. And, you know, ultimately that sort of work on the local level is, um, is really impactful and, um, will go a longer way than, um, you know, more abstract, uh, endeavors that go on at the national level or in media and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, it, 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 it is difficult for sure at times. And I've dealt with some pretty bad trolling on, on social media and, and pushback in that way, which, you know, is, it's, it's not, fun to be called like a traitor to your own religion and stuff like that, you know, uh, but you know, it's that it also comes with the territory of being on Twitter. So, um, uh, but yeah, no, what gives me hope are, are these sorts of, um, grassroots relationships that are forming. And then also just some of the incremental progress that I see in public discourse broadly and in Catholic discourse specifically. Um, I've done a lot of work with, um, like, Catholic journalists and um, and others in public life to um, try to bring this message and um, and and to help inform people and I do see it paying off in little ways and so um, that you know means a lot and that it's encouraging to me so oh, that's great to hear and I hope that as more and more of these groups pop up especially kind of within Catholic settings or Jesuit settings uh, that your your forthcoming book could be a good guide for them to kind of help them start doing some of that uh, so when can folks get uh, the book when can they expect it to, to hit their, their virtual bookshelves at least it will drop uh, next spring um, so maybe maybe I'll be able to have an in-person book launch I don't know <laughs> um, uh, depends on where things are with, with COVID at that point. Um, but they can look, uh, next spring from Orbis, uh, for the new book on Islamophobia. Great. Well, Jordan, thank you so much for taking the time today and thank you for your continuing work. And, uh, I, again, I'm looking forward to, to the book and hopefully being able to, to share it across the, the Jesuit network. I think such an, an important thing, uh, this time and into the future. So yeah, blessings on everything you continue to do. Thank you, Mike. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. 
AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leepsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.